1956, Jock Lowe photographed Robert F. Kennedy. I was referring to RFK a week or so ago in a Netflix documentary. If you haven't seen it, I'd highly recommend it. It's very informative, very good. He uh, photographed, Jock Lowe did, RFK, and RFK's father, Joseph, appreciated the pictures and asked him to photograph John F. Kennedy's family, which he did. And three years later, uh, Lowe became the official photographer of the Kennedy presidential campaign. And after that, he was the personal photographer of the Kennedys. Lowe was a very meticulous photographer. Uh, he had an estimated 40,000 negatives of the Kennedy family, just the JFK family. And of those, only several hundred ever made it out publicly. And while he was alive, Lowe carefully monitored the use of the pictures. And when a, maybe a, a publication or a museum wanted to use one of his photos, he personally took the negatives to the lab for printing. And when the job was done, you know, he retrieved the negatives himself. His daughter said of him that he was being more prudent than most. He really believed uh, they were as safe as they could ever be. And she said he was only six blocks away from them, and he felt psychologically that they were under his bed uh, because he tucked them away in a safe. They were, they were kept in a safe, all 40,000 negatives, at the J.P. Morgan Chase Bank. And this was through the 1980s and 1990s. You might be curious to know the address of the bank. Five World Trade Center, a nine-story building that was heavily damaged in the September 11th attacks. A team of engineers used cranes and forklifts and dump trucks to retrieve things, including the vault that the negatives were in. But all that was found inside were ashes. 40,000 negatives. Now, Jock Lowe guarded tens of thousands of negatives that represented his life's work. And they literally all went up in smoke. Does the Christian have anything that he or she protects or guards with, with such meticulous attention and that lasts? Anything? 2 Timothy 1.14 says that we're to guard something. We're to guard the good deposit entrusted to you. These were the words of the Apostle Paul. And that deposit was the gospel. And there in 2 Timothy, Paul talks about the relationship that he had with the gospel. It's kind of a weird way to think about it, that I actually have a, a relationship and you have a relationship to the gospel. I hope a good one. But listen to this description of the relationship that Paul had to the gospel. He said, number one, he was not ashamed of it. He was not ashamed of it. He said that he chose to share in the suffering of the gospel. This is in 2 Timothy 1. He said that Christ gave him the gospel. He said that light and life 
were brought to him because of the gospel and that he could also give that to others. And then, of course, he said that the gospel was entrusted to him. Entrusted to him. I guard the gospel. What does that mean? The glorious gospel that Paul wrote about in 2 Timothy is roughly about 15 years after Acts 10. Now, Peter preaches one of the earliest sermons given with the specific features of the gospel that we're going to talk about here today. Peter was new to this thing, at least in that time in history. Fast forward 15 years later, and Paul had a bunch of experience. He could learn to value it even in a greater fashion. It wasn't just brand new to him. He, he learned it. But Peter's now just getting a, a first taste, as it were. He's enjoying the, the newness of it, and he's relaying some of the facts about it to a new audience, Gentiles, to which now there's no partiality with the gospel. And we hit that hard the last few weeks, but what I want us to do right now is stand, and we're going to read the passage that we're going to cover today. It says, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning with Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Father, may we never tire of the gospel. May we never look at it as ho-hum boring, but may we see it as light and life. May we learn new facets of it that help us to appreciate it and value it and guard it even more. And I pray that the centrality of this place be marked by the gospel, that it would be the gospel that marks Christ Community Church, not a program, not how we dress, not a facility, but the gospel and all the ramifications of making the gospel our focus. May you work this out in each of our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. Of course, we have seen previously that in the Old Testament, the Jews were God's chosen people. Now God's program was to reach out through all the world through the church. 
And by all the world, we mean Jew and Greek. The actual phrase that says that they were to show no partiality literally reads, God does not receive men's faces. That's how it literally reads, men's faces. The idea is that God does not favor a person based on external appearances, such as race or nationality. He treats all people on the same basis. The the offer of the gospel is available to all people, not just Jews. Now, the Jews, by the way, I think, had a right to be surprised that God included Gentiles. You say, what? No, I think they had a right to that, only not for the reasons they thought. But they also should have been surprised that God allowed them to be in on the gospel. We ought to be amazed that God allows anybody to appreciate or to see or to taste his grace. Why? Because none of us deserve it. None of us deserve the gospel. All of us deserve the judgment of God. Paul wrote in Romans 3, 9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greek, are what? Are all cursed by sin. They're all under sin. Every person in the world is deserving of God's judgment because of their sin. What is fair is that everybody be judged. That is the fair thing. But God is gracious to allow people to receive his grace. Paul understood this when he said, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of the grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That word for immeasurable, it's hooperbalo. It means super grace, hyper grace, extreme grace. What else could you call it? That we, deserving of judgment, are given eternal life. Because we looked the part? No. Because we cleaned up real good? No. Because we were AG, Presbyterian, Baptist? No. None of it. All are undeserving. We are the recipients of the super grace of God. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Now, Peter, in giving the sermon, is not now creating a new works righteousness when he says that we must do what is right to be acceptable to God. He's merely pointing out that every person in all nations is acceptable before God on the same basis. It's not one thing for the Jew and another thing for the Gentile. Anyone who recognizes their sin has to have a healthy fear of God first. That's a good thing. Anybody who humbles themselves before God and acknowledges their need of the gospel, that's 
good. That's what is acceptable. You turn from idols to Christ, that's good and acceptable before God. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. The word sent to Israel. That refers to Jesus and the apostles who were given the injunction to go to the Jews first. That's why you'd find Jesus preaching in the synagogues or or the apostles doing the same. Paul said in Romans 1.16, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first. And also to the Greek. When Jesus was talking to the disciples on the beach after the, the couple of disciples met him on the road to Emmaus, we read this. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it's written, that the, the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance uh, for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in the name of all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And the Antioch, Paul was talking to the Jews who were upset that he was proclaiming the gospel in the synagogue. And it says this in Acts 13, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the crowds are filled with jealousy, began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, Jews, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're going to turn to the Gentiles. The irony is that the, the message of the gospel was about peace, while the Jews insisted on a platform of, of ethnic pride and, and barriers of religious prejudice. And when I speak of peace, I mean peace with God. And by the way, this was something that was proclaimed throughout the Old Testament, we read this in Isaiah 52, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Notice there is a, there's a connection with this, this unity, this peace with God, and also the lordship of God, of Christ. And here even in the Old Testament it says, our God reigns. The Jews will eventually see that there's a peace, not only with God, but a peace that comes to all people, regardless of Jewish ceremonial or civil laws. That there is a, a wall that is broken down between Jew and Gentile because of the gospel. There would be no barriers between those who profess Christ and that he's Lord of all. See, where where Christ is Lord of all, a worldwide witness of fellowship with believers is free from, you know, cultural prejudice. We can enjoy this fellowship together. I've experienced this firsthand with Russians, with Guatemalans, with Bolivians, with people from Bodark, everywhere. You can have fellowship with people who know Christ. When the Bible speaks of peace, there's peace with God, when there used to be enmity with God, and then there's peace with others. Again, regardless of race, religious background, we can have peace, we can have unity. 
And this peace with other groups, what does it do? It demonstrates that God is the Lord of all people. See, Christ is not a, just a cultural or national king. He is a true king for everyone in the whole world. When, when the church demonstrates this unity, and I was, I was, again, recalling to some friends the other day about being with the police chief and black leaders in Springfield with our unity project and having those black leaders wash the feet of Springfield policemen and seeing tears come down their faces. Why? They had not experienced that before. That's, that's the beauty of the gospel. That, that gives God glory. That, that manifests his lordship. This is what can happen because God brings people together when there's been enmity like that in our country between the black people in our society and the police. But the gospel even can break that down. It's an amazing thing. Christ is king of all people. And when that's demonstrated, it, I think it, it shows us a part of the very character of God. There's a glorious passage in Ephesians 2 that speaks to this dividing wall of Jew and Greek being torn down in Christ. It says, for through him we both have access to one, in one spirit to the Father. Notice the connection of this unity. It just kind of flows out of who God is. It's connected to the very character of God. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens from the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone and whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you're being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God doesn't want a dwelling place that looks all the same, but one that reflects the glorious gospel. It reflects the power of the gospel in bringing all people together. Does that mean we agree on everything? No. But it means we're still together on the gospel. I don't even agree on everything with my wife, but we have a togetherness, a unity. And it transcends the secondary differences that you may have. And that displays God's glory. It declares his lordship. And believers that refuse to walk in unity, where they just accentuate the differences, believers that walk in unity with other believers accentuate the lordship of Christ. But believers that refuse to walk in this unity because of color, nationality, refuse to walk in unity because of politics or secondary theological differences, you know what they also refuse to do? In that act, they refuse to make Christ Lord. Because in that very act, it's not Christ who's Lord, it's me being a Republican that's Lord. Because in that very act, it's not Christ that's Lord, it's me being white that's Lord. And it's sin. It's wrong. Imagine how the, how the, the souls of the Gentiles and Cornelius here were just stirring as Gentiles who they've been out. 
on the outside their whole life. And now Peter's talking about, wow, you're in. You're included in God's family. Just imagine how their souls were stirring. This glorious gospel is indeed worth valuing and protecting. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were opposed by the devil, for God was with him. So the baptism of Jesus at the hands of John the Baptist, that, of course, we all know that kind of kicked off the, the public ministry of Jesus. There could be no doubt that Jesus was God's son, the Messiah. The Messiah, in fact, means the anointed one. And at his baptism, we read, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son with who I am well pleased. I need James Earl Jones to say that right now, but I'm sorry, you just have to hear my voice. At the same time, John the Baptist declared, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There could be no doubt that they were proclaiming that Jesus was the Messiah. And then the, it says, Peter says that the Holy Spirit gave Jesus power to do good and to heal and to, to free people from the devil. How did all this come about? Because God was with him. There, there could be no doubt that God was at work from the beginning of the life of Christ to his whole life on earth, and even in the resurrection, he gave him power. And we see this now in verse 39. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. I mean, it's one thing for Peter to talk about these things of Jesus to these Gentiles. It's quite another to say, we are witnesses of all that he did. How could the believers there in Acts 10 believe the lie that Jesus' body was stolen from the grave? How could they believe that these miracles were just made-up myths? How could they? They couldn't because they had in their midst eyewitnesses to the resurrection and the miracles of Jesus. Peter's essentially saying, I, I, I witnessed this. And this sets up the tremendous truth in the next verses. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. First, let us notice that even in resurrecting from the dead, Christ had to be dependent upon the Father. It's a beautiful truth. That's why we see Jesus constantly praying. Why? Because he was living in dependent faith upon his Father. Good model for us to follow. It was the Father who raised up the Son. Let us also see that the resurrected Christ was not some bodiless phantom. It was not some vision, but a physical body that was seen who could actually eat and drink. Very important detail given to us there. 
We can rejoice that the evidence of Christianity is not a, a blind existential leap. It's not believing some religious precepts despite what the facts say. That's not Christianity. I know some Christians live like that. They live that really denying the evidence. They live that despite what the Bible says. But Christianity is built upon the facts of history attested to by the eyewitness testimony in a physical world where miracles occur, where the resurrected Christ came up from a real grave. That is what our faith is built upon. And that's why we can have confidence in the gospel. We read in verse 41 what seems rather peculiar. Christ appeared not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses. God chose those who would see the risen Christ, indicating that not only was he involved in directing you know, the whole life of Christ and, and the cross and resurrecting from the dead, but he was also sovereign in who would witness the resurrection. Remember that there were people intent on lying about Jesus. They obviously hated Jesus because they had him killed, and they couldn't face the truth of the resurrected Jesus, so they lied and said that his body had been what? Stolen by the disciples. So God would not give the high honor of witnessing the resurrected Christ to every Tom, Dick, and Harry. God chose those witnesses who were credible and who would tell the truth. This was not a stacking of the deck to those who were friendly to the cause. It was simply evidence given to witnesses who were not blinded by their own prejudice. And God granted them that. And then they could attest objectively to the resurrected Christ. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he, the one appointed by God, to be judge of the living and the dead. Peter talks about two things here. Number one, he is a herald. He is a preacher who's to speak the gospel. He has a job to do, and that is to simply be faithful to preaching the gospel. He's a messenger. The second thing is he has a message. In other words, he's responsible for the content of the message, that God exists and that he's appointing Christ to be the judge of the living and the dead. Let's first talk about this divine mandate to preach. The preacher's task is to give God's message. This is not based on personal whim. This is on the declaration of the word of God as revealed in the scripture. We're not to subtract from it, you know, just lop off the Old Testament. is not the word of God anymore. We're not to add to it. I mean, when the... When the messenger inserts his or her own agenda, twists the message, changes it to fit the culture, he at that point becomes a liar, a false teacher. He's a liar because he has taken the position in front of others, opening the Bible as if he represents God. He's a poser, and the only authority he has is that which he invents in his own head. And people acquiesce to that. All that you need today, by the way, to get people to listen to you, is open up the Bible and say, God said. And, you know, people just People just sit and, you know. He, opened, he read the Bible, so he must be 
saying truth. The claim is all that people typically listen to. It doesn't matter whether it makes sense. It doesn't matter whether it's, you know, really aligns with the truth of the word of God. It doesn't matter if it's taken out of context. It doesn't matter if the life of the speaker is holy or not. You know, it's, it's, it's verified because look at all these people that follow. I mean, it's, it, it's like the word of God has gone from this, our, our subjective standard, or our objective standard and rule, to now this subjective standard. I, I just know this person's telling the truth. I feel it. I sense it. And the objective reality of the word of God is put on the back burner. Those are dangerous waters, my friends. Dangerous waters. Listen to what God would say about the false teachers and false prophets in Jeremiah. And the Lord said, I know this is not, <laughs> this is not popular, but I'm sorry. It's there. I got I to gotta say it, all right? You may not like it, but I think that when we are standing up in front of people, that's why James even, this is New Testament, by the way, says that teachers shall incur what? A stricter judgment. Did you know that was there in the Bible? You know what that means? That means that you're held to a high standard. You have to just say it clearly. You don't twist it. You just let it speak for itself. Don't apologize with a thousand qualifications like I can remember doing in my early years. It's kind of embarrassing, you know, to talk about these Old Testament stories and the fear of God. And I have to, you know, explain it a hundred times. You know, please understand, I'm loving, even though God may not be. And, you know, that's kind of the message we send, right? And at some point, you have to realize, wait a minute, you can't do that. Just read what it says. Explain what it says and let the Holy Spirit just do the rest. It's really rather simple. The hard part is just leaving it there and not trying to, you know, change it with a thousand qualifications. Anyway, here's Jeremiah. Did I just give a qualification? I may have. All right. Jeremiah 14, 14. And the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name, and I did not send them. Now, just, okay, everybody who says they're sent from God isn't sent from God. Right? Everybody who says they speak for God doesn't speak for God. Not necessarily. Nor did I command them, to, to, uh, command them or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, the deceit of their own minds. And then later in chapter 23, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you. Uh, probably ought to underline, underline that. Don't listen to the false teachers. Don't send money to them. Don't give them credence. Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to them, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. My dear friends, basically, watch out for those who elevate immorality, who denigrate the Bible, and who attack the exclusive claims of Christ. I think I can clearly say this, that's not from God. The message we proclaim is Christ, prescribes the terms of salvation. He has authority over the living and the dead. Who else is qualified to judge mankind other than God himself, and that's Christ? 
Who else can render verdicts of eternal life or death but Christ? He's appointed to determine the everlasting condition of all people. Now, if that doesn't scare the bejeebies out of you, there's something wrong. It should. We should respond with a, a fear of God. Nothing wrong with a healthy fear of God. Who else but God has that authority? Jesus fits that description. The story doesn't end there. Verse 43, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Notice, everyone, everyone who believes his name, everyone who believes his name receives the forgiveness of sins. No one else is qualified to forgive but God. No one else is qualified to be a sacrifice for sins but the Son of God. Jesus is the only one who fits this description. And that's our message. It's that simple. And so we are to guard it. We have to be willing to die for it if need be. We have to be willing to suffer for it if need be. It is what we are about. It is the central message of the church. Let's read Acts 10 again as we close. And let's stand again. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he's Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to those who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And all God's people said,